is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Justice Department announcing charges have been filed against an Iraqi national living in Ohio who is trying to organize a plot to assassinate former President George W. Bush. The feds say the man was looking to smuggle four Iraqi nationals into the country to kill Mr. Bush because they felt he was responsible for killing many Iraqis and breaking the country apart. We'll go in depth into this alleged plot and any possible terrorist connections. Governor Newsom getting serious about his threat of mandatory water conservation, but will people really listen? And a bill in Sacramento passes the assembly that would let parents sue social media companies if their kids become addicted. Voters across L.A. deciding ahead of the primary election in just two weeks who they want to be the next mayor. Two candidates to the front runners: the businessman Rick Caruso, Congresswoman Karen Bass. If you're still undecided, Karen Bass will join us in studio later in the show to make the case why you should pick her. Big primary elections today in Georgia, Texas, few other states could show how much pull the former president, Mr. Trump, really has on the Republican voters. We start, though, with uh, an alleged plot to assassinate former President George W. Bush. Javed Ali is a former senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council. He also served as counsel at the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. Thanks for being with us. Why can you tell us about this alleged plot? Gentlemen, good to be with you this afternoon. So pretty interesting uh, revelation from the Justice Department. And if the allegation and the indictment is true, shows that um, there was an individual here in the United States with links um, certainly back to Iraq and perhaps back to ISIS in the region who was intent on, or at least had the ambition to commit this um, spectacular attack. Now, I think that would have been a very difficult thing to achieve given the security, even around former presidents. But I again, shows sort of the the longstanding grievances and resentment that folks uh, 20 years after the initial invasion uh, of Iraq still may have towards um, senior government officials, including President Bush, for uh, for the invasion back then. Does it seem like they caught, they being the FBI, caught it pretty early because they had some confidential informant, apparently, that was talking to this guy, and that's how they got all the info. And he says, well, here's my plan. And as long as I guess you're not um, currently in the final stages of your plan, they just will watch you and, and figure out until they have all the goods on you because he went and did surveillance apparently, and they've they've got him on that, like the Bush Ranch. Yeah, again, it looks like this was a pretty textbook case of a counterterrorism operation that the FBI got wind of early. Now, exactly how they got uh, vectored or cited on uh, the individual who's been charged, not exactly. Sure, but once they did, um, then they started to not only build the criminal case, which led to the charges, but also an intelligence case. And that's why uh, it appears that confidential informants were used. That's why it looks like uh, the um, person who's been charged was allowed to engage in a relatively um, significant level of of what we would call pre-operational activity, even though at any time had that person um, gone in a direction which the FBI and law enforcement wasn't comfortable with, they probably would have swooped in sooner and, and arrested that person. But this is the, the textbook case of how these kind of domestic counterterrorism operations have gone uh, over the last few decades, even before 9-11, and whether the, the motivation was a jihadist one in this case, or even 
the pure domestic terrorism cases. This is what the FBI does day in, day out. Now, first, we don't know many details uh, as yet about what role the uh, informant played, but isn't that often the foundation for the defense, that the informant somehow led somebody down uh, down a road that they otherwise might not have gone down, and therefore it was entrapment. Does that work out much in court? Again, that is the, the use of uh, informants by FBI in these national security cl- cases to include counterterrorism. This has been going on for years and years and years. Up until very recently, that defense claim of entrapment has almost never worked, and certainly in the post-9-11 era, and that's where I spent my time in government. But a pretty interesting development recently was uh, a case now in my backyard here in Michigan. If, if your listeners remember the the plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer involved multiple um, defendants. Um, there was a recent trial for four of the defendants involved, and in that uh, and two of the four were acquitted by the jury, in part because the jury believed that the prosecution's case wasn't strong enough and the defense's claim on the counter side that uh, the the sources that were used uh, in that case entrapped the defendant. So I think we have to look at this on a case-by-case basis now, but up until the recent um, development in the Governor Whitmer plot, the FBI who was, has been able to use confidential informants rather successfully. Whether that changes in this particular case, we'll see if it goes to trial. Javed Ali, former senior director for Counterterrorism National Security Council. Parents in California might soon get to sue social media companies. A bill that just passed the Assembly and is now headed to the state Senate would let parents file lawsuits against TikTok, Instagram, and others if their kids become addicted. Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham is the bill's author. He's a Republican from San Luis Obispo. Uh, Congre- Assemblyman, thanks for being uh, with us. I elevated you uh, to the promotion. congressman, so you got a promotion. There you go. <laughs> thanks for being with us. I don't us. know. That might, that, that might be a demotion. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, so how exactly would this uh, work if it becomes law I- in practice? Yeah, if it becomes law, basically for the first time in anywhere in America, if you have a situation where a child, a minor user, is on social media, becomes addicted from that use using the medically accepted definition of addiction, and then suffers harm as a result of that addiction, such as uh, suicidal ideation, depression, eating disorders, all the common uh, anxiety-related problems that we've seen, well-documented, by the way, by uh, Facebook, for example's own internal research is showing that a significant portion of users, especially teenage girls, have suffered harm from addiction to to the product and the important thing so you would have the parent would have a cause of action if they could prove harm and addiction, and it would provide a safe harbor for those companies within three months of enactment of the bill that's signed into law. They would be able to disable the algorithm. Uh, algorithms, the features in the product that run in the background where your kid's scrolling through and using it that are promoting the addiction and, in some cases, pushing them to harmful content. And is that a roundabout way of of getting what you want out of this? Is it to get them to change those algorithms at the end of the day? Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it roundabout. I mean, I think it's pretty direct. I mean, I think you've seen a situation where, I mean, these companies are making tens of billions of dollars. They're uh, deriving data from kids from their use. And a certain percentage of those kids, uh, you know, know, upwards of 12% by one estimation, are actually suffering uh, significant psychological and mental health harms from from the use, and this would 
create the financial incentive for the companies to stop doing what they've been doing for several years. They are running algorithms designed by computer software engineers and neuroscientists that are for the sole and exclusive purpose of creating addiction and excessive use, and then they know that a certain percentage of those kids are ending up with eating disorders, depression, and all sorts of things. They've been doing it for years, and until, in my view, until we give them the financial incentive to change it and require in law that there is a duty to not harm children with your product, just like we do for bicycle helmets and water bottles and stuffed animals and any other thing that enters the stream of commerce that a child's going to be going to use. Uh, we just have not done that for social media, A, because it's new, and B, because we didn't have evidence that they were actually intentionally using algorithms to try to hook kids and harming kids in so doing. And now we have that evidence, and I think it's the time that we extend the product liability laws that exist for everything else, basically, uh, to this new form of technology. But I'm wondering uh, if this could uh, inadvertently backfire. You talk about having or giving them financial incentive to get rid of those algorithms. But if they do get rid of them, in effect, they would have to admit, or it would be an admission, would it not, that those algorithms were doing the exact same things that you have been accusing, that, that you are accusing them of doing, and wouldn't that leave them potentially uh, liable for lawsuits for past activities because people would come at them and say, ah, you see, you admitted that this is what you were doing all along. Well, that's precisely why we have an explicit safe harbor provision in the bill. They have uh, three months or a quarter to disable the features that they know themselves, their own research shows it, are fomenting the addiction. And then on an ongoing basis, they get an additional safe harbor as long as they're doing quarterly audits and making sure that their algorithms aren't causing harm to kids. So as long as they meet those safe harbor provisions, then they would not actually have liability. And I think that also creates the incentive for them uh, to make the changes that we all know they need to make. And if they just say, you know what, no more Facebook for uh, kids in California. Sorry, we're, we're pulling the plug for the kids. Uh, industry has pushed that talking point, and I don't believe it for a second. There are millions and millions of uh, youth, uh, you know, worldwide it's tens of millions, hundreds of millions. But in America, in California, I mean, there are millions of, of uh, users under the age of 18 on TikTok and Instagram. Just take the two biggest ones alone. Maybe throw in Snapchat. Now you've got even more millions. And the, the reality is they, they want those kids on the pl platform because that's somebody they're going to be able to uh, derive marketing information from and make an enormous amount of profit over many, many decades. And the reality is I think we can have both the benefits in terms of social connectivity that social media offers um, and – but we, we've got to have a basic minimum standard in law that says, hey, just like anywhere else, if you're doing something with your product that is causing material harm to children, then you need to stop doing that thing. And these companies are perfectly capable of making these changes, by the way. They have some of the smartest engineers in the world designing these projects, hand-in-hand, hand, these, these, these products, hand-in-hand, hand, by the way, with you know, neuroscientists. I mean, they know what it is they're doing, and they know how to stop doing it. And I think that I don't buy for a second that they're going to somehow en masse kick off tens of millions of users. They're just going to go disable the features that have been causing the harm, according to their own research. Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham, the author of the bill, Republican, San Luis Obispo. Coming up a little uh, bit later, L.A. Uh, mayoral, mayoral candidate and Congresswoman Karen Bass 
is going to sit down with us in studio as she makes her case for why she is the best person to run the country's second largest city. Right now, the governor says he might impose mandatory water restrictions because of the droughts calling on people to voluntarily cut usage by 15 percent. Doesn't seem like uh, that's uh, being listened to. Usage actually went up in March. David Feldman is with us. Cousin of yours? Only if he has a cheap uh, cousin, Murray. <laughs> it's the urban planning and public policy professor at UC Irvine, director of Water UCI, looks to solve water problems facing the state and elsewhere. David, thanks for being here. So when it comes to the mandatory stuff, uh, is this what has to be done at a certain point? Because the governor asked nicely, and then he asked kind of, hey, guys, really pay attention. But none of that's really been working. As we noted, people are using more water than they were, you know, a year ago. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but sometimes mandatory restrictions are really your only option. You know, ideally, we'd like for people to cut back at such a level that uh, there'd be enough water to go around. But the drought is very severe, seems to be getting worse. And we're entering the uh, season of the year when outdoor water uses in particular are at their highest. So how would it actually work in, in practice? Yeah, it would probably be left up to local water agencies to prescribe and to enact measures to require the cutbacks. But one possibility, and it's one that's not only been discussed, but it's an operationalized in some water districts, would be to mandate cutoffs of commercial outdoor landscape irrigation. Those would be measures that local governments and water agencies would actually be able to oversee and enforce. And for water agencies in cooperation with uh, local governments, local municipal governments, to a mandate, for instance, alternating days uh, of the week that residents could water their lawns. Uh, those would be sort of uh, largely self-enforced, but there would be the possibility of law enforcement agencies actually fining people uh, if they water uh, on days that their addresses do not prescribe that they should be doing that. So those are probably two of the most uh, immediately uh, effective ways. Do these uh, rebate programs and, and things like that, do those actually work? Because the, the water uh, utilities always promote that as a way. They say, hey, you know, let's go to turf or put in the drought tolerant. And I think they've right now renamed it California Friendly Landscaping, um, rebranding there. How much does that actually get utilized? It's a great question. And it does actually work. Part of the problem, and you touch upon it, is how widely it's utilized and what people do once they replace their lawns. The utilization factor Uh, is uh, more significant in some suburban areas than others, Uh, but there are still policies that sort of inhibit it. For example, zoning or planning restrictions that require a certain uh, landscape aesthetic uh, can sometimes discourage people from adopting drought-tolerant landscaping. Furthermore, if you adopt drought-tolerant landscaping, uh, you still have to care for it in an appropriate manner. If you water it, as if it was not a drought-tolerant landscape. In other words, if you don't do the proper outreach and public education, uh, you're kind of right back where you started from. Yeah, don't soak the uh, cactus. David Feldman, (laughs) urban planning and public policy professor at UCI. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The influence, the poll of former President Trump among Republicans will be tested again today during primary elections in five states. Most eyes will be on Georgia, where the former president's hand-picked governor candidate could lose, and badly. With us is Charles Bullock, political science professor at the University of Georgia. Charles, thanks for being with us. So it's not looking good, is it, uh, in Georgia at the moment anyway, for the candidates that Mr. Trump was advocating for? Yeah, the Purdue campaign is pretty much uh, closed down. It hasn't run any ads this month. And you know, if you're hoping to win a contested election, you've got to be up on the air in the last weeks. Uh, the president's pretty much washed his hand of it and is now essentially blaming Purdue for running a bad campaign. So what has happened with this campaign, though? Is it just that, that people in Georgia like uh, Governor Kemp? They like the incumbent, and uh, Donald Trump can't just anoint people, although he is very popular still with the base? Well, he is popular, yeah, but increasingly Georgia voters, Republican voters, are saying, yeah, they like Donald Trump, and yeah, they believe the election was stolen from him, but Governor, Governor Kemp has a has a record, and that record is one that Georgians like, and therefore they're not going to follow Donald Trump uh, down that down a different path when they're very happy with what the sitting governor's done over the last four years. So I think this tells us is that Trump's impact can be limited by a record. If an individual has a strong record, then voters are not necessarily going to listen to Trump. But let's be clear about this, because everybody is trying to, you know, sort of read the tea leaves. If Mr. Trump were to decide to run again in 2024, is it your notion that the same people who wouldn't follow him down that path to the candidates he wants, because they like the candidates that are currently there that have, as you put it, a, a good track record. Are those same voters, in your view, just as likely to go into the voting booth and, and vote again for Mr. Trump for president? I think they would. Yeah, I think a lot of them would. I think there's been some erosion. In another two years, there might be yet more erosion. And it's that anticipated erosion that's, for example, got... Mike Pence to come down to Georgia and campaign with uh, Governor Kemp yesterday that has persuaded the the Republican Governors Association to spend millions of dollars on behalf of Kemp. So what we're seeing, I think, is some movements like this called the Republican establishment, they're beginning to show up and and to begin to push back and move away from Trump. Yeah. Who do you think has an in if, for whatever reason, Trump doesn't run? Or who do you think might try and, and, and put their toe in the water as we go through the next couple of years anyways? Yeah, right now I think Trump White would probably be Governor Santos down in Florida. And he certainly seems to be positioning himself to try to make a run. I don't think he'd run against Trump, but Trump hesitates. I think uh, Santos is all prepared to jump into that. And so uh, but he has a message that will resonate with these Trump voters. Charles Bullock there, political science professor, University of Georgia. Well, there's uh, uh, just a horrible shooting incident, another shooting incident, this time in uh, San Antonio, west of San Antonio, Texas, at an elementary school. The governor of Texas is now saying 14, 14 school children are dead a teacher is dead, and an 18-year-old shooter, according to the governor of Texas, also dead.
Yeah, this is Rob Elementary, again, west of San Antonio, Uvalde, Texas. Um, call came into police earlier today about a, a shooter on campus. The governor was saying that uh, maybe something had happened off of campus at first, but uh, in his words, this person abandoned their vehicle and then made it onto campus with a gun, maybe also a rifle. They're going to be having more of a news conference, uh, and we'll keep you up to date on that. Kim Trump is a school safety and security expert, and uh, he joins us now. Can people run out of things to say? At times like this, because we keep having mass shootings in this country, we keep having school shootings in this country. There was thought, there was hope that, you know, after Sandy Hook, never again. And here we've got another elementary school. Uh, it is, and it's absolutely terrible. And it sounds like the numbers are, are high in terms of, of the injured and possibly the dead based on the information that you just uh, reported. Uh, you're wondering, you know, where did this happen? Did it happen outside? Uh, was it a group of kids that were outside the playground at recess at lunchtime or some type of, of scenario where they, they were outside, they were supervised by uh, a handful of d- adults, and, and we'll have to see as that unfolds. But uh, looking at as the information unfolds, which as we're all obviously gathering this piecemeal at a time, it sounds like the school district did have lockdown procedures. They locked down the entire district. Smart move. You don't know if there are multiple offenders or an organized uh, attack or if it's one lone person, as it typically often is. Uh, they, they have a parent reunification system, from what we can say, see, parents, so that they reunite parents and students together, get the kids back in the arms of their parents. Parents are understandably anxious. They're upset it's a wondering the status of their kid their family members it's going to have a, a long-term devastating effect on the entire school community there are going to be questions about security issues the counseling mental health uh school psychology end of things coming in to support the, the kids the parents and the staff uh and a whole community healing process that's going to take a very long time unfortunately sadly we we know these things because these are uh, things that, that I've studied and worked uh, in hands-on with the highest profile school shootings in, in the country, uh, and, and dissecting these, doing a forensic in, uh, analysis uh, in the aftermath of these uh, legally and, and, and working with schools after crisis. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's terrible. We get through. Uh, parents just want to drop off their kids at school in the morning and, and have, pick them up in the afternoon as, as safe and intact and, and a little bit smarter than they were when they last saw Well, of course, you know, the uh, this this problem, uh, and, it, and to call it a problem is an uh, uh, understatement, clearly goes beyond schools. Uh, I mean, we've had now in just the past few months, we had uh, people shot at the supermarket. We've had people shot in houses of worship. Uh, there doesn't really seem to be any place that is uh, safe. And at least that's the perception, I think, that some people have. Well, it certainly creates that perception, and understandably so, especially as, as we hear about these instantly unfold through uh, the rapid communications that we have today. The people need to realize, both parents and school if people in schools and in the broader communities, that the vast majority of people will never, ever encounter a, a mass shooting in, in their life, thankfully so. The bad news is uh, we're in a, a more volatile, uncertain, chaotic, uh, ambiguous 
world today. Uh, we know that in the schools, with uh, following the COVID, the in, un, uh, online learning, and, and all of the social emotional anxiety, there we've seen an overall uptick in, in violence and aggression in schools. Just this last weekend, not the weekend before last, there were at least four uh, shooting incidents outside of high schools and inside of, of high school graduation ceremonies around the country and as that we know of. I mean, this, these are things, you know, I attended a high school graduation uh, for a family member last night, and, and it was a beautiful ceremony. But these are the things that you just go to and you would never anticipate such a thing. People need to be more situ situationally aware. Again, the, the vast majority of people won't encounter these. But when we're, when we're out shopping, I, I, I'm talking with you live now from a, a shopping complex, uh, we need to uh, be more situationally aware. And we as a society are less situationally aware. We're embedded in our smartphone devices, <laughs> many people, unfortunately, while they're driving. Uh, and when they're in the parking lots, going into shopping centers, going into grocery stores, going uh, around uh, pick up and drop off at school and elsewhere, adults and kids are embedded in their phone. They're not aware of what's around them. They don't have a state of mindfulness to, to put themselves in the context of what's there because we're people are 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 smart. Uh, our minds are very intuitive, intuitive and and attentive to what's going on around us. If we're paying attention, watch patterns, we can detect things that are just not normal. You go in the grocery store often enough in your life, you're going to look and see a person doing something. You're going to go, this doesn't look right. This is not, we call it, you know, uh, pattern recognition. Um, and uh, people having the having an understanding of what fits and what doesn't and then following their gut, their feelings, um, that there could be a problem, but you're not going to do that if you're not situationally aware and engaged with what's going on around you. And unfortunately, we're headed in the direction of a society that is less tuned in and zeroed in to, to their surroundings rather than more so at a time that we need people to be more attentive. That's uh, Ken Trump, school safety and security experts. Uh, Ken, thanks for talking to us again from the governor of Texas. 14 students, um, one teacher killed in Uvalde, Texas, so west of uh, San Antonio at the elementary school. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Voters across the city of L.A. who haven't yet cast their ballots by mail will head to the polls in exactly two weeks to select their choice for the next mayor. What was once a long list of candidates has been shrinking and quickly. Yeah, it's really uh, down to a three-person race for all intents and purposes, but two of them are way ahead in the polls at the moment. And we have one of those candidates in studio with us now, Congresswoman Karen Bass. She's uh, been a front runner in the race since the day she announced that she was running. And we should note here that uh, we have extended an invite to both businessman Rick Caruso and also to uh, Councilman Kevin DeLeon. Uh, neither one of them, despite repeated attempts, has yet to say Yes, we will put our butts in your studio. So if you're listening, we will talk. So if yeah. you're listening, guys, you know the congresswoman is a lot braver than you are. So, <laughs> so come on, <laughs> congresswoman. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate well, it. Well, thanks for inviting me, and I'm happy to be here. I I want to start off. Uh, obviously, we weren't going to, but because of the news uh, that we've just been reporting on and this. Uh, 
horrific yet another shooting incident, this time at an elementary school in Texas. This time, uh, apparently 14 school children dead, a teacher dead, the uh, alleged uh, shooter apparently also dead. And I know that this is something that clearly even parents here in L.A. are concerned about. It's on their minds. If you were mayor, reasonably, what could actually be done as the mayor of the city of Los Angeles to give those parents a sense of safety? Well, and let me just say that my heart just breaks for these families. You know, as someone who lost a child, it's just, I mean, you just never, ever, ever get past it. You send your kid to school in the morning and you never see that child again. It's just a trauma that will be with you your whole life. And, you know, the number one job of the mayor is to make sure that Angelinos are safe. And so working in collaboration with the school district, I think right now when an incident like this happens, you need to reach all, you need to reach the leadership of LAUSD, everybody needs to go on alert because you never know if someone else is going to copy this. I mean, we just had a massacre a week ago in New York, and they seem to come in in uh, multiple times. And so I would really right now today double down on making sure the kids of Los Angeles are safe. And then I just pray at some point in our country we will bring guns under control. I mean, that there's no country like this in the world. No, none. Yeah. That goes through mass shootings. What What uh, do you think? Manner. What do you think that's doing to us? Even if we don't realize it yet, as it's happening, but it's getting to the you, point almost where even if you don't know someone you're directly affected by a mass shooting, you're a couple steps away. If you start looking at all of the places where they've happened—family members, friends, church, neighbors, colleagues, whatever it is—we're going to start to get to the point where you know somebody who's close because it's happening so often. You know what? I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the worst things in the world that could happen is if we accept this and normalize it. We need to always look at this as being horrific. We should never acclimate and say, well, this is just the way it is. But, you know, I mean, in a given month, we can have multiple mass shootings. And uh, and, and I'm sure you've been in a situation where you've been somewhere and a car has backfired and you jump. And I think we're all sensitized to this right now. And I just think it's 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 a tragedy to see this continue to happen in our country. It, it is. But people will note that in introducing you, I prefaced it by saying Congresswoman. Mm-hmm. That's right. You've been in the U.S. You're in the U.S. Congress. Yes. And people are going to say, yeah, but Congress hasn't done anything. Well, that's why I said I pray that one of these days we'll be able to. I can't tell you how many times I've voted for gun control or against loosening gun control. I mean, I've taken votes in Congress where my colleagues on the other side of the aisle did not want to restrict gun ownership to people with mental illness or to people who are on the no-fly list. So you can't go on an airplane because we suspect you might be a terrorist. But my colleagues have said, but we shouldn't block them from having guns. That is pure insanity. And so it has been a big frustration, but it's part of the structural problems you have in Congress where there is good legislation that gets stuck. Even President Biden is not able to get legislation out of the Senate. Now the House, we function better. (laughs) The Senate, that's the problem. So does it ever get fixed? I mean, people talk about common sense gun control, but if you can't agree on what common sense is, then 
we're not going to ever move any place. Well, let me just tell you, again, if you're going to give guns to people with mental illness and on the terrorist list, I don't know where your bottom is. When in, in that situation, I just have to be partisan about it and say we have to have more Democratic senators and we have to maintain the majority in the House. And I hate to be partisan about it, but my Republican colleagues and, and I have to say in their sort of defense, if any of them did vote for gun control, they're probably going to lose their seat. But I will tell you, my congressional seat would never be that important to me to the point where I would say, well, I can't regulate guns because people might run against me. OK, let's move on to probably the number one issue that that many people in this city uh, at least consider a number one issue. And that's the problem of homelessness. Absolutely. So what I want you to do, Congresswoman, is I would like you to tell our listeners, if you're mayor of the city of L.A., what is the one thing that you would do that none of your predecessors did do and why they couldn't do it and you think you can't? Well, I don't know that I could boil it down to one thing, but okay, I'll two. try. I'll two. try. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go up I one. would declare on day one a state of emergency in the city, but a city state of emergency is not enough. We need the federal government to weigh in. So I got one thing for you. Yeah. I would bring together every level of government because I have deep relationships on every level. I would bring the federal government, the state government, the county, and the city together as long as we are functioning in silos or at counter purposes, we are not going to deal with this problem. I have strong relationships with the Biden administration, and we need to have regulations relaxed in several of the areas, whether you're talking about health and human services or housing and urban development or even homeland security so we could bring FEMA to the table. We have to have the county and the city working hand in glove. You know that the city builds, the county provides services. We have to work together on that. And then, of course, the state is rather flush right now with a $97 billion reserve fund. So you have so that I think that's the one thing I would I would have a whole of government approach. And that has not happened before. But why, but why not? Well, yeah, why, <laughs> why does this why defeat everybody? Because everyone who wants to be mayor comes in saying, you know, I'm going to fix this thing. And then you wait until they're done and they leave very unpopular because they didn't fix it. Well, what I said is, is that I'm going to bring to the table all the levels of government because I have either served on those levels or I have deep relationship and experience with those levels of government. Yeah, but, but what do you think has been blocking it? I mean, oh, yeah. uh, Eric Garcetti, he used to come here almost every month. We would do an Ask the, the Mayor program. And, and I believed him, and I do believe him, when he said he was sincere about trying to really put, put, put the homeless issue uh, behind and try to get affordable housing for people. And, you know, look, we'll look he, at all he, the money we passed. Yeah, as voters. that's right. And he hasn't really succeeded at well, that. And, and, and you know what um, has been sad? I mean, listen, I voted for those propositions. I promoted those propositions. You know, they have gotten some housing built, but at extreme amounts. The other thing is, is that they did not consider 
the people who are on the verge of homelessness today. And so for every 200 units of housing that were built, 215 more people became unhoused. So you have to have a comprehensive approach. You have to prevent new people from becoming homeless. You need to get people off the streets immediately. There are just some things you don't do outside, and pitching a tent is one of them. And I'm concerned that we have almost normalized it now so that it happens. You also have to address why people were unhoused to begin with. So I think one of the things that has not happened over the last few years is the hand and and glove between the city and the county. The city and the county are still working in silos and counter purposes toward each other. A perfect example is the lawsuit that was recently filed, not recently filed, but recently settled, where the alliance sued the city and the county and the city settled, but not the county. Yeah. And so that it, it would to me, it was a perfect example of the dysfunction. It has to be settled together. Yeah. I mean, about those roadblocks, how do you feel about things like like care court? Because even the governor has run into these kind of things. Um, well, let's get them into care. Let's get people who are clearly in crisis into care. But then uh, you get arguments on the other side. No, it violates people's rights. You can't take them anywhere. But, you know, if you live downtown and you, you go to the corner and somebody's not wearing a lot of clothes and they're clearly in some sort of crisis, you need to help that person somehow. Let, let me just tell you that uh, in another life, I worked in the medical field. I was trained as a physician assistant. I worked in the psychiatric emergency room. I worked in the regular emergency room. I took care of people who were unhoused, people who were profoundly mentally ill every day. And I do not think it is just, I do not think it is humane to have people on the street who are clearly gravely disabled, who clearly cannot take care of themselves. And unfortunately, the only tool we have now is called the 5150, which means you can detain them for 72 hours. So I'm very interested in the concept of the care court, but here's what I'm concerned about. We better figure out which facilities we are going to take people in because we don't have the facilities right now. Right now, the and you all know this, the most expensive yeah. mental health institution in our city is the county jail. But here's what happened from my own experience. I grew up in New York City, and when I was growing up in New York City, we didn't have a lot of homeless people who were clearly uh, you know, mentally ill roaming the streets because in those days they used to put them in institutions because the feeling was that it wasn't fair mm-hmm. to have them sort of you know, fend for themselves in the streets of Manhattan because that was more cruel than giving them care. But it was, you know, frankly, it was civil liberty groups, civil liberties groups. Bless you. You're about to go ahead. You can sneeze. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> no. Uh, but we'll turn off the mic really fast. Yeah, but, <laughs> but civil liberties groups came along. You know, I'm talking about in the 60s and 70s. And they said, no, you can't do that because it's depriving them of their constitutional rights. And sure enough, as time went by, New York City has the same problems that we have in here in L.A. Exact think, same problem. I don't think it is freedom to die on the streets profoundly ill. I do not think that's freedom. I do remember those times, and I thought it was right to get people out of institutions. But if you also remember, there was a commitment that was made that was never fulfilled, and that is community-based institutions were supposed to be built that were more humane. Also, medicine has advanced now. We have medications that will allow people to be functional. And if I say that somebody needs to be cared for or hospitalized, it's not forever. You hospitalize. Hospitalize them until you stabilize them, and then you send them either back home with their families or to a humane facility that is a community-based institution. 
Let's talk about your opponent for a second. Obviously, polling who, who, shows. Who, by the way, is not here. Deg Heat. Okay. Yes. Well, you're we've invited. invited. Uh, we've Rick invited. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you can come. But uh, what is this fight like? Because it's, it's kind of twofold, right? He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of ads running. And then there's, let's just call it uh, anti-incumbent sentiment or translation, no more politicians because politicians got us all the problems that we have already. I think we tried the other alternative on a national level and it didn't work so well. Gee, who are you talking I about there? Hmm. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. You know, I, I mean, it, the, the reality is, and I think that it's a sad reality, there is a lot of cynicism in our city and in our country toward people who are in elected office because people are not seeing the problems that they have to face being dealt with. I think the worst thing in the world is to contribute to that cynicism by painting everybody who chooses public service with the same brush. For example, a quote-unquote career politician I spent the majority of my life in the private sector. I ran for office later in life. I was in my early 50s the first time I ran for office. And for somebody who has been in the private sector their entire life, running a company, wonderful, wonderful advancements, but has never had a board of directors or shareholders, you've only been accountable to one person, it's pretty easy to say, I'm going to come in and command things. But the problem is, is that it's not really the way our democracy works. Well, Caruso, you know, says he wants to, you know, clean up the city. He wants to get it back on track. Uh, would you, if you win, take him at his word and, and try to utilize him? I don't have any reason to not take him at, at his word, but I do believe that, I, well, I am not sure how he intends to go about it. When I listen to what he says, it seems rather simplistic. I understand that government is a lot more complicated than that and that we don't have an autocracy here. We have a democracy. So one individual can, can't, cannot come in and command everybody to do what they want. You have to have relationships and you have to respect people. So if you disparage everybody that's in office, how are you going to work with the 15 members of the city council? Homelessness and then crime. That's number two. So what's the plan for what we're seeing out there that has people saying something's going on because I don't feel safe? Exactly right. And so we have had an increase in crime and we need to address it head on. As I said, the first job of the mayor is to keep people safe. So you know what I would do? Yeah. I want to get officers and there's some neighborhoods that want to see an increased police presence. Some neighborhoods that don't. But for those neighborhoods that want to see an increased police presence, the way to get officers on the beat immediately is to get them from behind a desk. So I would hire civilians so those officers can get on the street immediately. They're already trained. They're already prepared. At the same time, I would also recruit and hire officers. But here's the thing. I know that that's a complicated process. Why? Because the personnel office is understaffed right now. But two, because the city has had difficulty recruiting officers. But when you already have officers that are trained, why not get them on the beat right away? So I would hire officers and I would hire up to between two and 400 because that's what we can afford. And people who are saying that they're going to hire 1,500 officers know good and well that the city would either go bankrupt or they would have to have devastating cuts in other areas that would create other problems in our city. New mayors often uh, hire new police chiefs. Um, how would you rate the current 
LAPD police chief, and would you keep him? Well, I have a good working relationship with Chief Moore, but Chief Moore and anybody else who is in leadership deserves a fair evaluation. What were his goals when he started? What has he accomplished? Has crime gone up or gone down? Not that I would say he's responsible for crime going up, but what has been his approach? What is working? What isn't working? There's a lot of problems with our police department. And sadly, our police union, instead of spending money improving police relationships with communities, especially some communities, have chosen to spend $4 million in attack ads. Uh, and I think that that's, that's a sad state of affairs. Congresswoman Karen Bass, you sure you sure you want to leave your good job now and do this? You know what? Yes. And I'm going to tell you something, though. In all seriousness, this wasn't an easy decision. I didn't decide to not run again because I was tired of Congress. I love the work that I've been able to do there. I work really well across the aisle. I work with some of the most conservative Republicans, and we get things done on very important issues. But, you know, when, when your house is on fire, you come home and put the fire out. And so if this was all about my quote-unquote political career, I would stay in Congress and shoot for a leadership position. Instead, I'm risking everything to come home to say this city is in a crisis and I feel like we could go one or two directions. The city can come together as a whole and say we are going to end this crisis or we can all turn against each other and have a very divisive city. And we have to remember what the last administration in Washington did to this country. I don't want to see that happen to our city. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and I'll come back. <laughs> you hear that? That's directed That's to right. Rick yes. Russo and Straight to, to Kevin DeLeon. <laughs> if you don't want her to come back, show up. All right. That's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>